This morning we come to John chapter 5. As you know, we've been kind of working our way through, excuse me, the gospel of John, and we're finding our way this morning in John chapter 5, verses 1 through uh, 18. We're going to look at this morning. This chapter is significant for a number of reasons, but three of those reasons I'd like to just kind of bring to the forefront. The first reason why this chapter is significant is that it contains the third sign. Uh, You might recall that one of the major themes in the Gospel of John are these signs uh, that, that John tells us about, and we don't exactly know how many there are. It's kind of debated, but maybe there's seven, maybe there's nine signs. He doesn't always tell us explicitly which signs are official kind of signs in the book, but we know the purpose statement that John gives us in John chapter 20, verse 31. He gives us these signs so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. That's the purpose of the book. That's why John is giving us this gospel so this chapter, John chapter 5, contains the third sign. Uh, this also, this, another reason, uh, another factor that we find in this chapter is that there's kind of a transition in this chapter. Uh, there's a shift in uh, our perspective on Jesus, at least uh, those around Jesus. Up to this point, uh, Jesus hasn't re- received open hostility and what we're going to see in John chapter 5 is, is that transition. And so uh, where we might have saw some hesitation with Jesus, now we're going to see an open hostility towards Jesus by the end of this chapter. In fact, by the end of our passage this morning in verse 18, we'll see that. And so this chapter contains the third sign. It's recording a, a shift from hesitation to hostility with regard to Jesus. And uh, also this chapter forms what I'm saying is the strongest argument for the deity of Christ, the strongest argument for the deity of Christ. This chapter gives us proof that Jesus is equal with God. And it's this theme that we're going to capitalize on this morning, and we're going to actually capitalize on that theme for the next three messages. And so this, this morning, we're going to look at the evidence of equality, and next week, we'll see the claims of equality, and then we'll have a mission Sunday where Tom will come and, and teach, and then after that, well, we'll see the witness to equality. And so we'll kind of work our way through John 5 and focus on this idea that Jesus is equal with God. So that's kind of where we're going. This morning, here's the big idea. This passage will present irrefutable evidence that Jesus is equal with God. That's our big idea this morning. This passage will present irrefutable evidence that Jesus is equal with God. And so with that, If you would, please stand, and we'll read our passage this morning. Again, John chapter 5, verse 1 through 18. John 5, verses 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and and while I am going, excuse me, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. 
take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. As I said, this passage will present irrefutable evidence that Jesus is equal with God. Let's begin in verses 1 and 2 with an irregular setting, an irregular setting. As John 5 begins, we discover there's another feast in Jerusalem. John doesn't tell us what feast, he just says that there's, it's a feast of the Jews. He's not specific. As we know, John isn't always concerned with giving us kind of a chronological biography of Jesus, Uh, But as it is in this book, this is the second time that Jesus has been in Jerusalem. You might remember that Jesus was there already during the Passover, and it was there that he cleansed the temple. Jesus left Jerusalem. He went up through Samaria. That's when we visited the Samaritan woman. And then he went up into Cana of Galilee, where he healed the nobleman's son. And then now we find him back down into Jerusalem. Of course, he doesn't tell us which festival, but here he is again in Jerusalem. Now, of course, there's nothing irregular about Jerusalem, but there is something irregular about the place in Jerusalem that Jesus chooses to visit. Look at verses 2 and 3. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. You should know that the sheep gate is an opening in the north wall of the temple. It's near this gate that, as it says, there's this pool here, the pool of Bethesda, which means house of mercy. That's what that word means. It was in this pool near the sheep gate that they would wash the sheep before they went through uh, into the temple, and they were, of course, sacrificed. And so this pool with its roofed colonnades and all these people that were around it was a kind of outdoor hospital, you might say, those shade structures there to, to uh, block the sun for these invalids that were laying around. Now, John tells us that there was a multitude of disabled people here. Now, on any given day, as I've studied this, it turns out there might be about 300 people there. Well, during a feast, especially if this was a Passover uh, feast, there could be up to 3,000 people laying in and around this pool. So you have a great multitude of people. As you might suspect, this isn't a place for the upper class. It's not really a place for pious Jews who want to remain ceremoniously clean or pure. Yet, 
This is where we find Jesus. Even greater, it's from this irregular setting, as I've called it, that Jesus sets himself on a new trajectory. Up to this point in John's gospel, Jesus has only been questioned and disrespected. He hasn't encountered open contempt or wholesale persecution. But it's here, in this irregular setting, that all that will change. Jesus is about to do something that will draw hatred from the religious leaders. And so, let's continue in verses 5 through 9, where we'll see an irresistible sign. An irresistible sign. Look at verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going in, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Certainly an irresistible sign. Now I want to focus first on the miracle, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the man. Jesus asked this man, do you want to be healed? Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this and when I study this, it seems like kind of a silly question. Um, Obviously, the man wants to be healed. Uh, Maybe some of you have learned uh, that there are questions you just don't ask in life. Uh, If you're a husband, uh, maybe you've learned that the hard way. (laughs) You don't ask certain questions. Uh, Some questions are like landmines. And some questions are just irrelevant. Well, sometimes I I was thinking about uh, asking a fisherman if he's caught anything. Well, this seems somewhat like an irrelevant question, doesn't it? Because all fishermen are, by nature, liars. (laughs) I can say that because, of course, my dad was a fisherman. My dad was also a painter, and I was a painter for some time. I was a house painter, and uh, speaking of irrelevant questions, you know house painters wear whites. Well, you'd be surprised at how many times I was asked, are you a painter? (laughs) Yes, I am a painter. I wear whites. Uh, Again, an irrelevant question. These are the kind of questions that earn us the rank Captain Obvious. I have to confess... I don't think I would stand at a sick sick man's bed and ask, do you want to be healed? Yet, here Jesus asks the question, you might put yourself in the man's place, do I want to be healed? I haven't walked for a generation, and every time I'm near the pool, the pool ripples, the pool uh, bubbles, and I I claw my way toward toward it. I reach and I pull And I fight to get to the water, yet year after year, I can never make it. Someone stronger is always in the way. And while I'm stuck here in this filthy place, all the while stuck here in this filthy place, what do you think, Jesus? Do I want to be healed? Now, a little bit of drama there, dramatizing of that response in verse 7. We actually read his response, which says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Now, I suppose it's possible to read some charity 
into this man's response. Uh, however, I'm tempted by the larger portrait of this man uh, to think that this is more of a complaint. And so I've dramatized it that way. More on that in a minute. In verses 8 and 9, we have the actual sign, the actual miracle as it happens. Jesus says to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once, the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. So this miracle, as we see, it comes as a result of three commands. Jesus says, get up, take up, and walk. Three commands. The cure for the man's disability is instantaneous and complete. Whereas the man believed he needed the pool to be healed, well, the words of Jesus suffice, and he is instantly healed. The man at once picks up his mat, and he is on his way. 38 years of disability, and just like, just like that, he walks off into the distance. Something interesting here, something that's lacking in this miracle, if you picked up on it, is that there, there is no comment about faith. There's nothing here about faith in this entire miracle. I suppose it's possible that this man, the obedience to Jesus' words, are considered, or that we might consider them, a, a faith response. But that seems somewhat unlikely to me. The miracle is so direct and the results are so fixed that I'm not sure what contribution this disabled man could have made. Furthermore, as I've noted, John doesn't say anything about faith. There's nothing about faith in this entire passage. This miracle from Jesus is unlike the miracle workers of our day who try to equate faith with healing. Maybe you've encountered some of these faith healers. When their healings prove faulty, they accuse the healed as having a faulty faith. In contrast, Jesus healed many who actually showed absolutely no evidence of faith. We have many examples of that. Matthew chapter 12, verses 10 through 13, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. In Mark 7, Jesus heals a deaf man. In Luke 14, 1 through 4, Jesus heals a man with dropsy. And here in John 5, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. In none of these examples is faith exercised. There's no evidence of faith. It's just the healing. And so we might ask, why? Why heal this man? And why heal a man who exercises no faith? Well, I can think of two reasons, two possible answers. You might be able to think of more. It's possible that Jesus healed this man out of, man out of sheer compassion, just a, an act of pure compassion, raw compassion for the man that Jesus healed him. Verse 6, as verse 6 says, Jesus saw the man, and with divine knowledge, he knew that he had been there for a long time. And say exactly that he has compassion, but there's a sense there that maybe Jesus just had compassion for the man, and so he healed him. He took action. Wouldn't be unprecedented for Jesus to do this, because Jesus does do this in other places. We read in Mark chapter 1, verse 41, moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and healed a leper. Moved with pity, moved with compassion, he just healed. Jesus does that. In Mark chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, as it relates to feeding the 5,000, we see a similar kind of reason for the miracle. It says, I have compassion, Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. 
And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. It's not that Jesus looked out on the multitude and saw that they all had faith and healed them. It was just an act of compassion. Jesus has compassion, so he fed them. Jesus had compassion, and he healed the man. He healed the leopard. And maybe here, Jesus has compassion, and so he heals this paralyzed man. Again, why heal this man? That's the question I'm trying to answer right now. It's very possible the answer is found in the raw compassion of our God. In fact, it seems that whatever other reason we come up with, compassion has to be a part of the answer because God is a God of compassion. Psalm 72, 13 says, He has compassion on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. As Thomas Chisholm's great hymn declares, Thy compassions, they fail not. So it's possible Jesus healed the man as an act of compassion and another possible answer here. It's possible Jesus healed the man to illustrate sovereign grace. As John 5, 21 says, which we'll get to next week, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. As Jesus walked down to that pool and looked out at the thousands, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed, He chose this man. And as far as I can tell, there's nothing special at all about this man. He exercised no faith. He demonstrates no hope in God. His only worldview, as far as I can tell, is some superstitious belief about bubbling water. It's all we know about him. Therefore, I believe, possibly, this is a a picture of God's sovereign election of us, of the believer, that we are like this man. While we're clawing to find bubbling water, he commands, get up, take up your bed, and walk. John has more to say about this, and it would fit uh, this section. In John chapter 6, we have this in a couple places. In John 6, 37, we hear Jesus say, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast away or cast out. In John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In John 6, 65, is another verse. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So why heal this man? Well, we might have an act of sheer compassion here, and we also might have a a picture, an illustration of sovereign grace. Whatever it is, this single act will change everything for Jesus, as I've alluded to. It's this sign that will take take Jesus to the cross. In an irregular setting and through an irresistible sign, Jesus will provide irrefutable evidence that He is equal with God. So, let us look a little bit closer at this man. In verses 10 through 15, we'll see the evidence unfold in an irresolute supporter. An irresolute supporter. Now, if you're paying close attention, you can probably see why I call this paralyzed man irresolute, that word meaning indecisive or hesitant. Uh, In layman's terms, as I read this, this man is on the fence, you might say. Notice what the man does when he's confronted by the Jews about working on the Sabbath. 
verses 10 and 11. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and you, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now, it would have been capital punishment for this man to be accused of the crime of working on the Sabbath, but he takes no ownership for this action at all. What he does is he blames Jesus. That man, he told me to do this. Notice verse, verse 13. Verse 13 says, Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. The man blames Jesus entirely for his, for his doing, for, for, for carrying his mat, and he doesn't even know the name of Jesus. Now I realize maybe Jesus did get away. It's hard to find, but it seems to me that if, if I was invalid for, th- if I was disabled for 38 years, that I would have searched high and low to find who this man was. And here we see, he doesn't appear to be searching out the name of Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus healed the, the 10 lepers in Luke 17? Maybe, quite possibly, this man is like one of these 10 lepers, or the nine lepers, uh, is the way Luke records it in Luke 17. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifting up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Seems to me that this man is more like the nine than the one who returned to Jesus. The man blames Jesus before the Jews. He fails to seek the name of Jesus. And finally, upon being found by Jesus in the temple, what does he do? Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Seems like he's just tattling on Jesus here. He's running back to the the religious leaders and saying, I found him, it's Jesus. He made me do it. As far as I can tell, This man seems more interested in avoiding the Jews than aligning himself with Jesus, than becoming a disciple of Jesus. And so I've kind of captured this in this irresolute supporter. I sense the man is ambivalent. He's divided. He's uncommitted to Christ. As John tells this story, when you think about this character, this man, he's he's a rather flat character. What do I mean by that? He's very one-dimensional. He he displays very few character traits in in many ways, and as the narrative develops, really his only purpose here is is to give reason for the Jews to seek to kill Jesus. That's really why he's here. He's not here for much else. We can't learn much from him. Thus, again, he's an irresolute supporter. There is, however, something interesting Jesus tells him in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. It's an interesting thing he tells 
the man. We learn something else about the man with these words. Apparently, his condition came as a result of some kind of sin. It's really the only way to take these words. These words from Jesus are a warning. We can only take them to mean that sin had some part in causing this man's condition. Jesus says, sin no more lest, or in order that, nothing worse might happen to you. Syntactically, the, the two ideas can't be divided. They must stand together. The unavoidable implication or result of this statement from Jesus is that whatever previously happened was on account of a sin that must not happen again, or else something worse might happen. Now, I don't know what that worst thing might be. Maybe it was being paralyzed again. Maybe it was hell. I don't know what it was. But we can't avoid this idea that, that this condition, the condition the man has, is a result of some kind of sin in his life. That being said, of course, it would be wrong for us to take from this that every ounce of suffering or disability is on account of sin. We know that that's not true, and there are other passages of Scripture that confirm that. Principally, it would be John 9 and the healing of the blind man. In some ways, the healing of the blind man is kind of a, a contrast to this chapter, and if when we get to John 9, maybe we'll look back at John 5 and we can see how these two uh, characters uh, they they're compare and contrast really well. You have a, a, an irresolute supporter, and you have this blind man who's very faithful, and he's very committed to Jesus. But we read there in John 9, verse 2, when the disciples asked Jesus about this uh, man who was born blind, you remember they asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They thought that his sin was a result of, that his condition was a result of sin. And Jesus sets that straight. He says, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Thus, there are some reasons for suffering that, can't be known, that can only be known in the mind of God. You remember Job's counselors believed that his suffering came on account of sin. That was the only... Uh, reason that they could understand for the suffering that Job encountered. They believed there's no death without sin and there's no suffering without iniquity. They were wrong. That being said, it is also true that sin may lead to suffering, which is kind of what Jesus is getting at here in this passage. While suffering does not always find its source in sin, suffering does come about by sin, and that seems to be what Jesus is saying in verse 14, which is evident in this man. This irresolute supporter is not the only character in our passage. There is another character that we haven't explored. If this man is, or characters, I might say, if, if this man is a flat character, well, we, we find round characters in the Jews. Unlike the healed man, the Jews are not ambivalent. They're not on the fence about Jesus. And so... We see the evidence continue to unfold with the irre uh, irreverent spectators. The irreverent spectators. Look at verses 16 through 18. And this is why, and this was why, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, 
but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Making himself equal with God. Now, if there's anything that rivals the profundity of Jesus' miracle, miracles, it has to be the Jews' disregard for it. It's, it's, it's unbelievable, it's borderline comical that such a miracle wouldn't overshadow their legalism. I, I don't know what it's like to, to watch someone heal someone that way, but to just overlook that and be so concerned with some law is unbelievable. There are two issues that they take up with Jesus. The first is related to the Sabbath with some foreshadowing. John told us in verse 9 that Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath. And this was the issue the man was running away from in verses 10 through 15. The healing in John 5 is one of, these, uh, one of the many uh, events that triggered controversy over the Sabbath. We see a number of these throughout the Gospels. In Mark 2, the Jews accused Jesus' disciples of working on the Sabbath. Remember, they were plucking the heads of grain. In Luke 15... The ruler of the synagogue railed at Jesus because he healed a woman who had a disabling spirit. The Jews that accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath are not wrong about the Sabbath. They are not wrong. I mean, the the Old Testament does forbid work on the Sabbath. That is correct. However, the actions of Jesus do force the question, what is work? Exodus 20 gives us the actual command. Exodus 20, verses 8 and 10 says this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or, your, or the sojourner who is within your gates. That's the actual command from Exodus 20 about the Sabbath. What this command seems to be speaking of is one's actual employment. That's how I read it. It's, it's one's actual work, their vocation, what they do for a living. And so, if you're an Old Testament ditch digger, or you're a merchant in the city, or a scribe, the, the Old Testament is commanding you to take Saturday off. That's what the command is, to set it aside. However, what this law had expanded to in Jesus' day was a prohibition against 39 classes of work. Of course, they built that hedge around the law, and they added all these other regulations to the law. One of those classes included taking or carrying anything from one domain to another domain. Hence, the accusation against the man, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Therefore, Jesus doesn't command the man to break the Sabbath. He's not commanding him to break the rules. Man doesn't, the, the man doesn't break the Sabbath by carrying his mat. It's not his vocation. It's not his job. What he breaks are the regulations set up by men. That's what he's breaking. The Jews turned a joyful day of rest into a day of regulation. And apparently, it wasn't, the only, it wasn't only the paralyzed man that broke the Sabbath, but Jesus himself is accused of breaking the Sabbath. It says in verse 18... They accused him of breaking the Sabbath. We know, with this miracle and others, that Jesus persistently maintained it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. They might say he broke the Sabbath, but he is saying, no, it's lawful to do good things on the Sabbath. 
Jesus addresses this directly in Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. We read this account. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. What rules is he going to break? And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. They had nothing to say. Again, it's not, it's not unlawful to do good on the Sabbath. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath issue is not the only problem that the Jews had with Jesus. This just reveals a bigger problem. Verse 18, it says, they sought to kill him because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. With this verse, I believe we've come to kind of the highest point of the passage, the most significant theme or point uh, of this text And this is the word equality, the idea of Jesus being equal with God. As I understand first century Judaism, the Jews did refer to God as their father. They did that. They might even use my father in a prayer. However, it's always qualified with something. My father in heaven. Some kind of qualification there. Some kind of separation. Uh, They wanted to remove any suggestion of equality. and, And we would say rightfully, they're not equal to God, neither are we. And so we also qualify that statement. But Jesus, He makes no qualifications. He puts no limits on His nature. He does not steer us away from thinking that He is one with the Father. Verse 17, but Jesus answers them, my Father is working until now, and I am working. He is working I am working. Equality with God. The Jews rightly understood what he was saying. Jesus is claiming to be one with the Father. They understood him. Therefore, it was not that it was it was that Jesus was supposedly breaking the Sabbath. He actually wasn't breaking the Sabbath, but they breaking their rules that he was supposedly breaking the Sabbath and that he claimed to be equal with the Father that led them to seek all the more to kill him, which is what verse 18 says. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Now, I told you that this passage would give us irrefutable evidence that Jesus is equal with God. Well, this evidence is really found in in both this miracle and the words of Jesus. Kind of the, the actions and words of Jesus together form this irrefutable evidence. It's one thing for, his, for Jesus to have healed a man. If that's all we had, Jesus would be an amazing prophet, for sure. We, we have those in the Bible. We read about Elijah who, rail, uh, who raised a young child from the dead. Uh, you might recall Paul who did some America, amazing miracles. He, he struck a magician with blindness in Acts 13. But Jesus is more than that kind of prophet or, or a great apostle, He is more than that. He's more than a man, of course. This is what he claims. These are the claims that he makes, that he places next to this miracle. 
While others have performed miracles, none have placed these kinds of words, these kinds of words, alongside of the miracle. My Father is working until now, and I am working. And the irrefutable evidence that Jesus is equal with God is that He can work on a day that only God can work. Only God can work on the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, I can work on the Sabbath. Genesis 2 tells us that after God finished His work of creation, He rested. We know that. He rested from His creation or His work of creation. This rest is the basis of the Old Testament commandment to rest on the Sabbath. It's the Old Testament uh, basis for that Sabbath rest. However, that God rested from creation does not mean that He ceased from other work. We know that that's impossible. For if God were to rest for one moment, we might say the entire universe would collapse. God is always at work. He's holding the universe together. Up to this very moment and every moment before, God is holding the universe together by His power. That's why Jesus can say, my Father is working until now. He's working right at this moment. Psalm 89, 11, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is, that is in it. You founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Nothing exists without God. Nothing holds together or is sustained without God, God's ever-present working. That's what Jesus is saying. And the Sabbath command is a testimony to this. That's the point of celebrating the Sabbath. For the Old Testament uh, believer, the Jew, the Sabbath was an opportunity to stop our labor in order to acknowledge his labor. That's, what's, that's what it's about. To celebrate the Sabbath is to say, God is at work, not me. It's to say, I'm under no delusion that I've got this. You, Lord, are at work, and you will see the outcome. Therefore, I will set aside my labor, my job, for one day, and I will look to your labor. That's what the Sabbath is about. And here we find the center of the irrefutable evidence that Jesus is equal with God. My Father is working until now, and I am working. That's the irrefutable evidence. Where you have to rest because you are not like God... I can never rest because I am God. So Jesus can declare in Luke 6, 5, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So this miracle and these words from Jesus are irrefutable evidence that Jesus is equal with God. Now, okay, that's fine and well, but what does that mean for us? What does this irrefutable evidence mean for me and you? Are there practical things that we might be able to draw out of this? I think there are. You might have heard the phrase, ideas have consequences. We see that the, the idea, or much better, the truth found in this passage does have a consequence. And that consequence was that the Jews sought to kill Jesus. It was the consequence of, of, of his equality persecution. The sight of heaven, the absolute claim that Jesus is equal with God, 
will always lead us into persecution. Let me say that again. The absolute claim that Jesus is equal with God will always lead us into persecution. Gary Burge writes, A strong witness to Jesus necessarily offends. This is as true today as it is, has ever been. We live in a world of pluralism and tolerance that exerts enormous pressure on us to refine away the distinctions of our faith that might offend He continues, we will hear, it is fine to make Jesus one way to God, but do not make Him the way. It is fine to affirm Jesus as one version of the truth, but but make no claim that He is the truth against which all other truths must be weighed, end quote. We see this, we see it in schools, we hear it in the university marketplace. Christianity is held suspect because lurking behind the surface is an absolute argument for the truth. And here's the thing, they are right. The Christianity of the Bible, the Jesus of the Bible, is not presented as one way among many. It is presented as the only way. And this means in a pluralistic society, that is a society that wants us to believe that there's a multitude of ideas and that those multitude of ideas are acceptable, In a pluralistic society, Christian belief will lead us into conflict. It has to. It always will. Here's the truth. The higher my claim for Christ is, the more separation and alienation I will feel. The higher my claim for Christ is, the more separation and alienation I will feel. Now, maybe you find yourselves or yourself in uh, sideways in some kind of relationship. And I, I recognize that that's hard, and I mean sideways because of Christ. And I recognize that's hard, especially when it's a person close to you, a loved one. It could be a spouse, it could be a child, a parent. And you find yourself suffering because one doesn't believe, about, doesn't believe in Jesus, and you do. And that's difficult That being said, you and I have to stand for truth. I think this passage helps us to to be reminded of that. Recall the words from 1 Peter chapter 3. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, which would be to stand for Jesus, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And of course, We always have these words from Jesus in John chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
I recognize those are, those are hard words. Those are, those, are, those are difficult words. And this point I'm making here, I realize that it might not change your circumstance. It's not necessarily a solution and not a way out. But the knowledge, the understanding that what we believe, what we speak, our testimony of Christ will offend, it does help us to shepherd our heart in those difficult situations. When we might be tempted to shelter the truth for fear of persecution, we will expose it. We'll recognize it's a part of being a Christian. Jesus suffered. Where we might second-guess ourselves, second-guess ourselves, we will trust that Christ is at work. As William Cowper wrote, I love the line, behind a frowning, frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. He is there smiling at us even when it's hard. And those relationships are, as I've said, sideways. Stand for Christ. Don't lose heart. Of course, with gentleness and respect, stand for Him. John G. Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides. From a young age, he desired to become a missionary. It was as if he was kind of born to be a missionary. He always knew that he wanted to be a missionary. In his biography, he, he describes a job opportunity early in his life, and this job opportunity would put him under obligation for seven years. I think it's, a, it's an interesting illustration of this point. He writes, Thanking him most gratefully for his kind offer, this is the man that offered him the job, I agreed to bind myself for three years or four, but not for seven. Excitedly, he said, Why? Will you refuse an offer that many gentlemen's sons would be proud of? I said, My life is given to another master, so I cannot engage for seven years. He asked sharply, To whom? I replied, To the Lord Jesus. And I want to prepare as soon as possible for his service in the pro proclaiming of the gospel. Doesn't seem like that would be that big of a deal. In great anger, he sprang across the room, calls the paymaster, and exclaimed, Accept my offer, or you are dismissed on the spot. I'm going to fire you. I answered, I am extremely sorry if you do so, but to bind myself for seven years would probably frustrate the purpose of my life. And though I am greatly obliged to you, I cannot make such an engagement. His anger made him unwilling or unable to comprehend my difficulty. The drawing instruments were delivered up. I received my pay and departed without further parley. Seems simple, but he lost his job just over that. This is the kind of encounter that we might have standing for Jesus. As we close, I want to return to the, the man, the paralyzed man, this man who was healed this man I've called the irresolute supporter. I mentioned earlier that up to this point in the gospel, Jesus hasn't encountered open contempt uh, or wholesale persecution, you might say. Therefore, John 5.18 forms a kind of transition in the book. From this point on, Jesus will receive open hostility from the Jews. They will seek to kill him. What this means is that it's this miracle the healing of this paralyzed man, the healing of an irresolute supporter that would put Jesus on a path of no return. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, On the human level, 
What Jesus did that day and what he said that day cost him his life. Kent Hughes wrote, Our Lord sealed his death warrant with this miracle. It sent him to the cross. He loved the paralytic that much. He loves that much. You remember the parable in Luke 15. Jesus says, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep that was lost. Was the paralytic a lost sheep? I don't know. What I do know is that the Lord sealed his death by healing a man of questionable character. Psalm 25, 8 is helpful. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Mark 2, 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus sealed his death warrant not by dying for those who have their lives together. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. I certainly wasn't. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might, be, uh, might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is, let, no, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I don't know if the paralyzed man ever boasted in the Lord. I don't know. The story doesn't tell us. What I do know is that this man's indecision leaves us with a kind of challenge. If you can relate to the paralyzed man, consider again the evidence of equality. And, like this irresolute supporter, get up, Take up your bed and walk. Amen? I'm going to invite Joel and the musicians up to lead us in a closing song. And when they're done, I'll go ahead and do some membership stuff. We'll have our mem new members come up and we'll uh, pray for our meal after the service.